Hey everyone, this is Nick Campbell. Thank you for tuning into Christ is the Cure. As of December 15th, 2021, Holidays in the Feast, the second edition, will be available in paperback and for Kindle. In this edition, you will find expanded discussions and arguments with a more readable format of Christians in the Feasts, Christmas and Paganism, a biblical case for celebrating Christmas and Easter and Paganism. In addition to having the benefit of this content on paper in a more accessible format, you will also find expanded arguments, more details, and more citations along with supplemental graphics within the text. If you had the first edition, the second edition is beneficial in that it has more visuals it is compiled and formatted as a book for readability. It has been overlooked by multiple individuals for editing purposes, has the expanded sections and arguments from the first edition, and incorporates and organizes information from episode 149. Lastly, the most significant update to the second edition is that it includes episode 175's content in a written, readable format as well. You can find Holidays and the Feasts on Amazon, again in Kindle and paperback, by searching the title along with Nicholas Campbell or look in the description of this episode for the direct link. Thank you all and enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. This is our Christmas special for this year. Um, I really wasn't going to do an episode this year on the topic, but I had a wild hair and it happened. This episode, compared to last year's episodes, is going to have a different focus. This is going to be more of a positive case, the biblical case for celebrating Christmas. Um, so our previous discussions have been heavily centered around refuting objections to celebrating Christmas on the basis of alleged pagan roots and traditions, right? Uh, and that was what we focused on in uh, 148 and 149. Those episodes were focused on those elements. Is Christmas pagan? Um, and what I found after those episodes were published, was that even if we eliminated those claims of pagan origins, I was still pressed to say that we shouldn't celebrate Christmas because it's not explicitly taught in the Bible to celebrate Christmas. Um, and I do discuss this in episode 149 a little bit, but as I contemplated this notion more, um, you know, that the celebration of the Incarnation is unbiblical because it isn't explicitly taught in the Bible, I found it really just found wanting on both logical and biblical grounds, right? Um, and so to address this issue today, we're going to look at a few concepts. First, we're going to look at celebrations in a general sense. Two, we're going to look at traditions of men. And then third, we're going to look at the incarnation in scripture. Um, now, many individuals came to me about 148 and 149 saying that uh, there was no biblical support. It was lacking biblical support. Uh, those episodes were historical in nature. They dealt with the history of Christmas, which is a post-New Testament tradition. 
we, we've already said that. Um, and so I hope to demonstrate biblical support for celebrating the incarnation of God without having that explicit command to do so. Um, and further, I would say that to say the church cannot celebrate a miraculous work of God because God didn't command us to is quite peculiar. So for this particular installment in our Christmas discussions, um, I simply ask you that if you're listening to this, you should begin with a clean slate regarding your presuppositions on the pagan origins, or just presuppose that I was correct in my assessment that Christmas isn't pagan, because otherwise this whole episode won't make any sense, because if you're convinced that it's pagan, then then everything I say here will be meaningless, right? So what we could do, we can even pretend that the history of Christmas doesn't exist at all, and we can focus upon the Bible, and I would say that we could have a case for celebrating this work of God today. So as noted in the beginning of all the other installments, this discussion really will boil down to conscience and liberty. And so I do recommend everyone study Romans 14 in detail. We will discuss an element of Romans 14 here, but I want to keep it brief. Now, with that all said, uh, it seems wise to first define the term incarnation, and then we'll consider celebrations in a general sense, and then we'll follow that up with the concept of partaking in the traditions of men. So first off, incarnation is a term that literally means taking flesh, and it comes from the Latin text of John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the term came to fully encompass the doctrine, the teaching of the eternal person of the Son adding to himself a human nature. A fundamental concept regarding the incarnation is first that the human nature of Christ is not a person, but is a nature assumed by the person, the divine Son. A second concept that is fundamental, the person, Jesus, the eternal son, still possesses his fundamental divine nature, but assumes a human nature and acts through it. So the scriptures note that the son became flesh, taking on the form of a servant voluntarily. He lived as a man in thirst and hunger while living perfectly under the law in righteousness to fulfill what was required of humanity. The celebration of the birth of Christ is intrinsically linked to the celebration of the Incarnation first and foremost. The Incarnation is realized in the eternal divine Son being birthed as a baby boy. And so with that definition, we can uh, start speaking about the traditions of men and celebrations. So the polemical rhetoric goes like this. God nowhere speaks of making Christmas a part of Christianity, nor does he say to celebrate the Son's birth, it is a celebration that is created by men, and thus we are disobeying God by adding to the commandment of God and partaking in the traditions of men. I've heard it a thousand times. Now, at times, this rhetoric will be modified. For example, sometimes I, I won't hear the phrase, uh, you're adding to the commandment of God, because most will happily say that there's nothing obligatory, effectual, or salvific about celebrating Christmas. I have yet to see Christmas added to the list of Christian ordinances for those who support Christmas. In fact, quite the contrary. Those who are anti-Christmas tend to give the celebration more weight than those who celebrate it in regards to the status of those who partake in Christmas. What becomes quite extraordinary is that these individuals who are loosely quoting Mark 7-8 to condemn the practice of Christmas are using a verse that was directed towards the legalism of the Pharisees who added rules and regulations to Scripture. So who is the legalist? One who adds the commandment of God and holds it over another's head. And I would postulate that this happens more often with those who are anti-Christmas. 
Their commandment is simple when you boil it down. If it isn't explicitly in scripture, you shall not partake. And if we follow this logically, there's a lot of problems and we'll get there later. Now, worth noting is that the anti-Christmas rhetoric is ultimately a way to say, and I have heard it said explicitly, that we shouldn't esteem one day or a season over another. Now, when I was explicitly told this, it was actually followed by, quote, every day is a celebration of the incarnation and the gospel, end quote. And this is true, but it negates the value of the annual planned and dedicated times. If if this had no value, then why not just tell Israel that every day is a celebration of the Passover? Every day is a celebration of the Day of Atonement. Of course, the rebuttal will be that the Passover and the Day of Atonement were commanded in Scripture, uh, but by what biblical prohibition can you tell others to not esteem a day or season unto the glory of God? You can't. In fact, Paul says quite the opposite, plainly. Quote, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Romans 14, 5-7. And right here, I just want to emphasize Paul's phrase, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. And so with that said, we can all move on from here. And this can quickly become a discussion on what is called the regulative principle of worship, which has historically been interpreted in various ways with little agreement and um, or even consistency from its own adherence. However, my goal here is not to get into the weeds as to whether or not a congregation versus an individual can celebrate Christmas, but rather to discuss what I perceive to be a solid biblical case for celebrating the Incarnation. Now, most of the anti-Christmas rhetoric I have witnessed stems from individuals who are not even acquainted with the regulative principle, and so I digress with that in mind. Instead, there are presuppositions that state that, quote, traditions, end quote, or traditions of men are all inherently wrong. Um, and what is deemed traditions of men, and thus wrong, quickly becomes a matter of subjectivism. And I would say that this is basically a misunderstanding of the Bible, and it's a negation of the reality that traditions of men are always present in church history. See, the question is not whether or not traditions are bad in themselves, because we all have traditions, but rather, does our tradition become added as obligatory in Scripture, thus carrying equal weight with Scripture, or does it become a means by which to disobey God? Now, in the context of Mark 7, the verse that's loosely quoted in relation to all this, the Pharisees were using authoritative traditions, as they saw them, to void the word of God, according to verse 13. And this text is not merely about celebrating a miraculous work of God, uh, which Jews and perhaps Jesus himself did happily with the Feast of Dedication mentioned in John 10, 22-23, and that was a celebration focused around an event that occurred during the intertestamental period, during the 400 years of silence, and we know it as Hanukkah. Now, the reality is that traditions will always abound. And one of the most obvious ones that we always forget about for some reason that was present in Jesus' day are the synagogues themselves, which were formed in the intertestamental period, the 400 years of silence, and they became a major means of assembly for the Jews. The truth is that these community centers were never commanded by God and yet were a significant place for worship and religious life. Now from here... Whenever we discuss celebrations in general, if celebrating a work of God not expressed 
explicitly to celebrate was a sin and voiding the word of God, the Israelites and the Christians would be in a heap of trouble. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Now, back to this notion of if it isn't explicitly in scripture, you shall not partake, we find a problem. It's a domino effect. Why? Well, because we do many things in our day-to-day that are not explicitly mentioned in scripture, such as utilizing modern technology to serve and worship God. Uh, We have small ecclesiastical details not found in scripture, and these are often called circumstantial details. We partake in events and cultural activities all the time. And of course, we celebrate a variety of things all of the time without the direction of scripture. Now, obviously, we can't do whatever we want. There are principles and prohibitions in scriptures, yet there are things where there's freedom to apply those principles and obey the prohibitions, right? Um, But before we expand, I want to touch on Mark 7. Um, While other texts are ripped out of context for this anti-Christmas rhetoric, uh, such as 1 Peter uh, 1.18, the consistent text is Mark 7. And Mark 7, 1-13 says, And the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who came from Jerusalem, and they saw his disciples that were eating bread with defiled hands that is unwashed, for the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they first washed their hands, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many traditions which they observe, washing cups, copper vessels, and pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with defiled hands? And he said to them, Isaiah did well in prophesying concerning you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain they worship me while teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and grasp the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And the one who reviles his father or mother surely dies. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, Corbin, whatever is given is Corbin, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother while voiding the word of God by your tradition, which you handed down, and many such things you do. Now, worth noting here are a couple of historical and cultural issues that are central to this text. First, traditions here are customs developed by the scribes in their interpretation of the law, which contained the washing of various vessels and hand washings, prior to eating for the sake of ritual purity. Now, certainly right out the gate, the tradition of Christmas isn't comparable as we do not include Christmas in our interpretation of the law and we do not add it upon the law as a requirement, nor is there any notion of higher religiosity or cleanliness, to use the language of the biblical text, for partaking in this holiday. Now, quite the contrary, the anti-Christmas rhetoric interprets the law to prohibit celebrations and imply that you are of higher religiosity or more clean and more pure from abstaining from such holidays. Regardless, Jesus uses an example of a tradition that is used to reject the commandment of God, and specifically the fifth commandment to honor one's father and mother by claiming Corbin. Now, Corbin indicates that something is being dedicated to God, and the Corbin provision allowed for a loophole of honoring one's father and mother, specifically here in terms of economic support by deeming money as dedicated to God. Now, the weight of the text is placed upon Jesus' citation of Isaiah 29, 13, in that he notes that the prophets spoke of these hypocrites who were leaders that rejected God and his will and replaced it with their traditions. So the theological issues that are central to this text are namely regarding traditions being elevated over and against the commandments of God in such a way that the scriptures are void. This issue is not that tradition is bad, but that if tradition is a means of voiding scripture, there is a problem. 
Additionally, the focus upon the heart over and against mere external purity is stressed in the quotation of Isaiah, where worship of the people is erroneous because uh, they say the right things, but they don't have a heart that's uh, directed towards God. But instead, they make themselves gods, right, by creating traditions that overtake God's commandments and add to them. And they uphold those more so than actually upholding God's commandments to obey or honor your father and mother. So it is here where I would postulate that those in favor of Christmas, those who truly celebrate the incarnation of the Lord, are not doing what the anti-Christmas crowd suggests. First, the Christmas crowd does not add Christmas to the law or its interpretation of the law. Second, the Christmas crowd does not say there is a purity in observing the day. Third, the Christmas crowd doesn't undermine the law of God because there isn't a prohibition against esteeming a particular day, quite contrary to Romans 14, or making a celebration from the work of God. Instead, Christmas was formed from a love of God and to celebrate his miraculous work in history. Now, such added celebrations are not wrong, as we will see in the Bible. And when we look closer at the concept of celebration, we actually find that all of our lives should be a celebration, which makes this concept more difficult. So let's go ahead and just jump right into that. It seems strange, but we should probably start with a definition of celebration. Now, celebration, according to most dictionaries and definitions, is simply doing something special or enjoyable for a particular event, occasion, holiday, and typically it involves gathering with others with the same purpose in mind. Celebration is ultimately an act of thanksgiving, commemoration, or display of admiration for someone or someone's accomplishments. Celebrations don't need to be annual in particular, but they certainly can be, just as we noted with the annual Feast of Dedication prior, that is Hanukkah. Celebration is not only a natural expression of humanity, but the Christian life is one of celebration, specifically a celebration of the character and work of the triune God and the gospel. To count every instance of rejoicing and praising and celebration in the Bible would be a long and hefty task, because from Genesis to Revelation... Celebrations regarding who God is and what he has done just ripple throughout the text. In truth, we celebrate many things, whether it be a promotion of a job, someone meeting the Lord, a baptism, the birth of someone in our lives, um, an unanswered prayer, so on and so forth all the time. Um, the birthday thing, that becomes a whole other can of worms. We're not going there. Uh, the point is that celebrations are a normal part of human experience. And as Christians, we have God to direct our thanksgiving to because of our biblical worldview. Now, if I am honest... With this simple reality in mind, it should be a given that celebrating the incarnation of Christ would be acceptable, but of course I want to demonstrate it. Regardless, joy and thanksgiving are key elements of celebration. And in the Bible, we have a couple examples of such celebrations. One being the joy of the completed temple featured in Ezra 3.10-13, and another one in Nehemiah 12.27-43. Nehemiah 12.27-43 is particularly interesting now, I recommend you read a little bit into the background because it's excellent. But the text in verse 27 notes, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness and thanksgiving and with singing and with cymbals, harps, and lyres. So within this text, we find the nation of Israel finding the Levites, gathering with them to celebrate God's faithfulness in the completion of the wall by dedicating the wall to God. They planned... They invited many, they gathered many, and celebrated. And yet this was not a celebration commanded by God. They instead, in joy, gathered to celebrate the faithfulness of God in the rebuilding of the wall. And they did so with songs. And they even assigned two large choirs to give thanks. You can see that in verse 31. And they had worship and even sacrifices. They dedicated the wall to God. And they did so without command while incorporating worship and sacrifices out of mere joy and praise for God's faithfulness. 
It is at this point that I am inclined to raise the simple question. If Israel can celebrate the faithfulness of God in rebuilding of the wall, and things such as the festival of dedication, right, then why can't Christians celebrate the faithfulness of God in the incarnation of Christ, who is the gospel of God promised hundreds of years before his birth? Why should Christians be forbidden from marking, planning, and celebrating the culmination of God's promises being realized in Christ coming to earth? Now, surely the coming of the high priest, prophet, and king, God the Son incarnate, anticipated for centuries, is worthy of celebration just as much as the rebuilding of this wall. Now, I would postulate that we all know that this is worthy of celebration, and we celebrate it constantly when we recall the gospel in our lives, because without the incarnation of Christ, there would be no gospel for us. So with such an obvious statement, the debate actually becomes, can we have an annual celebration where we can refocus ourselves and reflect upon this work? Surely we can, according to the functions of festivals in the Old Testament, right? That's, that was their function, to have these reminders yearly. Um, we see this with the tradition of the Jews, with Hanukkah. It still goes on to this day. Romans 14 is another issue to be brought up in this particular discussion. And of course, the celebrations of the Incarnation in the New Testament themselves. So with this all said, I and many others would happily say that Christmas is a tradition. We agree. But it is one that is non-binding on individuals. And we join Paul as he says, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. So here we have a detour. And it's worth pointing out that many times Christmas is mistaken, even in Christian circles, to be merely the birthday of Jesus, right? But the feast of the nativity of Jesus is more than that because of the fundamental nature of Jesus himself. Yes, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, but the tradition is more focused upon the birth of the incarnate Son. It is a celebration of the incarnation and the coming of the gospel. We must also recognize that there are traditional elements within our contemporary settings that are optional and some that do indeed tend to distract from the celebration of Christmas. So that, each family will need to have those conversations if they desire to celebrate Christmas. That's just a matter of the fact. You'll have to discuss those things. This detour is not to discuss those details, but to simply discuss the heart of the matter, the central focus, the incarnation of Christ. So from here, we're going to look at the Gospels and the birth narratives, um, uh, beginning with the Gospel of Luke. And beginning with the Gospel of Luke, we find much anticipation for the coming of Christ and the realization of Mary's pregnancy. And in chapter 2 of Luke, when Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem and have Jesus, we meet the shepherds in the field in verse 8. Verses 8 through 14 note the shepherds in the field in verse 8, the appearance of an angel in verse 9, the proclamation of the good news in verse 10, and the message confirmed by the birth of Jesus in verses 11 through 12. And of course, the heavenly angels praising God at this event in verse 13 through 14. It's a very famous chapter. We, we, we know it very well. The angel speaking to the shepherds says, quote, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, verses 10 through 11. The news brought to the shepherd is not only for them, but will be for all people. Thompson comments, uh, notes of joy resound throughout the embassy narratives and frame Luke's gospel. And he points to uh, chapter 1, verse 14, uh, verse 28, verse 44, verse 47, verse 58, chapter 2, verse 10, and then chapter 24, um, verse 52. Now, important to note here is the phrase, quote, the news of great joy, end quote, and its connection specifically to verse 11, quote, for unto you is born this day, end quote. Here there's a conjunction, haughty, which is translated as for, for unto you is born this day. And this conjunction is an explanatory conjunction. It explains the content of the good news and the reason for great joy. Marshall continues, a birth has taken place 
which will benefit the shepherds and all who hear the news. It is the birth of the long-awaited Redeemer that is the good news first proclaimed to the shepherds, and such news would be a joy for all people. Verse 12 notes this confirmation, that is, that the baby can be seen wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. In verse 13, we read that a multitude of angels, noted as heavenly hosts, appear suddenly and praise God in verse 14. Marshall comments here that the angelic song is in effect a proclamation of the result of the birth of Jesus rather than a hymn of praise directed directly to God, though the praises begin by ascribing glory to God. So here we thus find worship and celebration elicited by the birth of Jesus the Christ by the angels, first and foremost. The good news and joy for all people is wrapped in swaddling cloths, God the Son incarnate, who will bring peace and joy. Following this event, the shepherds decided to go to Bethlehem to see what was proclaimed to them. Verse 15, they exchanged some words with Mary and presumably Joseph. And from there we read, quote, And the shepherds returned while glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen just as it was told to them, end quote. Just as the angels, the numerous angels, glorified and praised God over the birth of the Lord, so the shepherds do the same. Surely this spontaneous worship of God over this miraculous work of God by the angelic and the men was not abominable or sinful. Surely that celebration and that joy over the birth of the Savior was not unfounded either. You're talking about the, the promise of redemption proclaimed for centuries, especially with the conclusion of Malachi before the 400 years of silence began. You're talking 400 years of dead silence in terms of divine revelation, and they've been waiting and waiting, and then this proclamation comes. So you have this initial gospel being proclaimed after the fall in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and with Adam and Eve. And then you have it proclaimed to the prophets. And then you have the heavy messianic expectations whenever you go into captivity from Babylon. And then you have the heavy messianic expectations whenever all these nations are warring around you. Alexander the Great sweeps in and then Rome sweeps in. You have these expectations and then the birth of the Savior comes. That was worth celebrating. These lowly shepherds and the multitude of angels celebrated the birth of Jesus. And I guarantee that Mary and Joseph did too. That's the nature of giving birth to a child. And then how much more so whenever it's a child that Mary is told will be the Savior. And of course, that puts the whole song of Mary, did you know, into light, but what are you going to do about that? Now, while less focused upon the physical birth of Jesus, John's gospel focuses its prologue on the pre-existent Christ and the incarnation of Jesus. The prologue focuses upon who Jesus was before the incarnation and the incarnation itself. The birth of Jesus, the realization of the eternal Son of God taking on a human nature, is not only a miracle beyond others, but the beginning of the coming kingdom, the fulfillment of the law, the reconciliation of sinners, and the pivotal shift in the history of redemption. Types and shadows will reveal their substance as Jesus takes on flesh and Gentiles will be brought in under the wing of the one true God. And of such importance is the incarnation that John calls anyone an antichrist who denies that Jesus took on flesh in 1 John 4 2. Stephen Wellham notes, without the eternal son's fully human birth, growth, and development, we would not have an all-sufficient Savior whose sacrificial death achieved for us the full forgiveness of our sins, whose sympathetic services help us to walk in the power of forgiveness, end quote. Uh, the incarnation is a miraculous and necessary event, the profound humility of the son in the coming of the long-awaited king. The incarnation did not end with the birth of Christ— but rather, the birth of Christ is the beginning of the great life and work of our Lord and Savior. Just as Mary and Shirley Joseph and Elizabeth and John the Baptist, though he was in the womb, uh, the multitude of angels and the shepherds celebrated the conception and birth of the Savior and worshiped God appropriately, 
I find it to be a rich historical tradition that brings joy and reflection and is appropriate for me today. So moving on from here, the tradition of giving gifts is often linked with the gifts presented to Jesus by the Magi or the wise men in Matthew chapter 2. Often nativity scenes will present the shepherds, angels, and magi all being united around the cradle of the infant Jesus. However, it is typically understood that Jesus was likely a toddler around the time the magi visited. Now, early nativity scenes, from what I have gathered and understand, were essentially summarizing events around the birth narratives. And so this is a very simplified image that comes into play sometime in church history. Regardless, within this particular scene, we simply see the magi coming to bear gifts and worshiping Jesus in chapter 2, verse 11. Quite the juxtaposition to Herod, the imposed king of the Jews who's under the thumb of the Roman Empire who sought to kill the dissenters, the foreign magi who were thought to be Persian or Persian Jews by some, they actually worshiped Jesus. Um, Chromatius, a 5th century church leader, puts this scene in vivid language in his tract in Matthew. Let us now observe how glorious was the dignity that attended the king after his birth. After the magi in their journey remained obedient to the star— for immediately the Magi fell to their knees and adored the one born as Lord. There in his very cradle, they venerated him with offerings of gifts, though Jesus was merely a whimpering infant. They perceived one thing with the eyes of their bodies, but another with the eyes of their mind. The lowliness of the body he assumed was discerned, but the glory of his divinity is now made manifest. A boy he is, but it is God who is adored. How inexpressible is the mystery of his divine honor. The invisible and the eternal nature did not hesitate to take on the weakness of the flesh on our behalf. The Son of God, who is God of the universe, is born a human being in the flesh. He permits himself to be placed in a manger, and the heavens are within the manger. He is kept in a cradle, in a cradle that the world cannot hold. He is heard in the voice of a crying infant. This is the same one for whose voice the whole world would tremble in the hour of his passion. Thus he is the one, the God of glory, the Lord of majesty, whom, as a tiny infant, the Magi recognized. It is he who, while a child, was truly God and King Eternal. To him Isaiah pointed, saying, For a boy has been born to you, a son has been given to you, a son whose empire has been forged on his shoulders. So I would simply argue that the Magi, and surely Jesus' parents, along with whomever accompanied them at that time, were celebrating the coming of this king. Adoration, gifts, and worship with joy filled their hearts. And of course, there are other texts we can mention within the Gospels that emphasize the sending of the Son, such as John 3.16, but we're going to move on from here. We're actually going to move on to the Incarnation in Paul. And for Paul, the Incarnation is of no small matter. And while, again, we could all agree that the Incarnation is magnificent, my argument is that the Incarnation is worthy of celebrating and that such a celebration is permissible. That's, that's the point. Our first Pauline text uh, that I want to highlight is in Galatians 4, 1 through 7. The context of Galatians centers upon Paul's rebuking of a false teaching, which taught that to attain salvation, you must observe the law. Thus, the law was being added to Christ and his work in order to gain salvation. The passage in Galatians 4, 1 through 7 is deep and much more deep than what we have time for here. And so our examination will be pretty basic. The passage discusses those who are born under the law, noted as the elementary principles in verse 3. And some commentators will note that uh, these elementary principles can be applied to the Gentiles' basic concepts of morality, but that's neither here nor there for this discussion. Paul notes instead that, quote, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those under the law, so that we may receive adoptions as son. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, calling out, Abba, Father. Thus you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then also an heir through God. Now, some observations about this text can highlight the importance and impact of the Incarnation. First, the phrase, the fullness of time. This was a precise moment in human history wherein, by his providence and wisdom, God sent Jesus into the world. There are many discussions on the prime circumstances in which Jesus was born, and he lived and died and was resurrected. In fact, I highly recommend you do a study on that and read on that subject. But the point being made here is that God's plan is enacted and put into motion at a particular moment in history beginning with the Incarnation. The Incarnation is not the end by any means, but it is a pivotal point in history, theologically and providentially. Paul moves on to note that God sent forth his son born of a woman. F.F. Bruce notes here that God's sending of a son coincides with his birth from a woman. And so if we take that and link it with Paul's expression about the fullness of time, we have this emphasis on the birth of the incarnate son as being the first step in the great gift to humanity. Now, Bruce actually has more on this phrase, the fullness of time, and I'll quote him here, quote, But what is emphasized here is that the nodal point in salvation history marked by the coming of Christ or the coming of faith constitutes the divining ordained epoch for the people of God to enter into their inheritance as his mature and responsible sons and daughters. It is the coming of Christ that makes this particular epoch the fullness of time, the preroma to kranu. Here, it is the realized aspect of Christian eschatology that Paul presents, the already rather than the not yet. The Galatians must understand that the period of tutelage is past. Their spiritual maturity has arrived. So, of course, in verse 5, which emphasizes the work of Christ beyond his mere initial coming, you know, the incarnation cannot be disconnected from the passage. We can't disconnect it. Um, but this is to say, we recognize the work of Christ in its entirety. So we must place first things first in their logical order when considering his work. And the first thing is Christ's humility in taking on human flesh and humble obedience to the Father's will. And this is noted, of course, in Philippians 2, 5-11 through 11 in particular. Paul's passage in Galatians stresses that Jesus was born under the law to redeem those under the law so that they may receive adoption. Adoption is a glorious theological reality for the believer in Christ. And for that to be gifted to humanity, it required the work of the incarnation. It required Jesus to be born of a woman under the law so that we could have the spirit which proclaims in our hearts that God is our father. This is to say that the incarnation is a work of Christ worth celebrating as much as his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And I think that we don't really think of the incarnation as a work of Christ when we should. Um, and that really gets back into our next text, which is probably my favorite text on the incarnation, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. There's a lot of gold in this text, and we have a very limited discussion here. Um, if you want to hear a more robust discussion on this text, you can hear episode 160 of Christ is the Cure. But let's just jump right into it. So leading up to this target text, Paul has spoken about his current situation in Rome while calling the Philippians to live in a manner worthy of Christ. Paul calls those in Philippi to live in unity in chapter 1, verse 27, and chapter 2, verse 2. And contrary to some in Rome, uh, which is seen in verse or chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, he instructs them to do nothing from, quote, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves in chapter 2, 4. Additionally, Paul notes that the Philippians should look to the interests of others and not merely the interests of oneself. In verse 5 of chapter 2, Paul notes that this attitude should be the attitude of the Philippians, as it was Christ's attitude, his, his mindset. 
Um, and this is expressed in incarnation and crucifixion. As the Philippians are told to put on the mind of Christ, what we learn about Christ is that Christ did not look to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Not only this, but he counted others more significant than himself in humility. And so from here, Paul moves from verse 5 by providing the grounds or an illustration for the assertion that he made uh, in verse 6. And the text read, Have this mind among you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited for his own advantage, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, having been born in the likeness of men. And found himself living as a man, he humiliated himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul expresses here that Christ was in the form of God, utilizing the term morphe. Now, this term is heavily debated, uh, specifically whether or not it um, denotes ontological realities, but the term should be simply understood as outward appearances, right? So morphe speaks to outward appearances, and it does so in a way wherein the outward form of the subject is a genuine expression of that which underlines the subject. Um, further, this text in verse 6 pictures the pre-incarnate son, that is before he takes on flesh, donning this garment of glory and majesty in accordance with his social rank. Not only is Christ described as being in the form of his splendor and glory and status, but Paul expresses that Christ is equal with God. Yet, whenever we keep reading, the remarkable pre-incarnate son is not only described as being equal to God, but he does not see his power and status as something to be used for his own advantage. The passage assumes the deity of Christ and that Paul is stressing that Jesus did not take this equality with God and exploit it for his own gain, right? And so Fee expresses this further, noting that uh, this was contrary to the gods and lords that were in the worlds of, uh, in the world of Philippi. Um, but rather than exploiting his power and status, God the Son emptied himself and adding to himself a human nature for the sake of others. Now, uh, just like Morphe, um, especially within the 19th century, this idea of emptying is heavily debated. We already talked about this again, like I said, in episode 160. Um, but the term denotes uh, this idea of putting away um, prestige or privilege more so than anything else. And Paul elaborates on this, noting that Christ took upon himself the morphe of a slave and thus emptying is the humbling of the son, not ontologically, his nature didn't change, but the humbling of the son by the addition of a lowly status and obedience unto death. And now while many would opt for the less offensive term of servant here, uh, we should retain slave because it's the only instance where the term doulos or slave is used for Christ, making it particularly noteworthy. But also it's relevant to the context. Um, the term itself in juxtaposition to the morphe of Christ prior to him himself would have been jarring to the Philippians. You had this splendor pre-incarnate Christ all of a sudden take on the form of a slave. It's a big jump. And if we consider the social pecking order and the placing of slaves within that social pecking order, we can understand why the notion of a being of equal rank to God willingly taking the form of a slave would have struck the residents of Roman Philippi as abject folly. That's a quote from Joseph Hellerman. Uh, such a folly can be understood in recognizing that slaves were at the bottom of this pecking order, especially in that they were by law inferior and categorically separate from individuals who lived in freedom. And the important qualification is that Christ did not actually become a slave literally, but rather, quote, in a relative sense, relative that is to his pre-incarnate status, and that is Joseph Hellerman as well. As it is stated by Oakes, quoted by Hellerman, the long drop from God in status to human being 
in status was significant and so much so that it was like taking the form of a slave from God to human was like dropping from the most prestigious place you could down to slavery. And as it is implied, this taking on the form of a slave is expressed in verse seven through eight by noting that Jesus became a man. Silva points out significantly that the term slave and man do not need to be pressed to find theological differences, but rather that the former notes the servitude of Jesus and the latter simply reminds us that he gave expression to the attitude by becoming a man. So in Philippians, then, we are faced with Jesus Christ, the kind and compassionate King and Savior, the eternal Son of God, who put away that which he could have exploited in order to rather humiliate himself in obedience to the Father for the sake of bringing a people into the kingdom of heaven. This all began, again, with the first things first, the remarkable work of the Son of God to have the humility to take on human flesh. Now, while we can continue this theme by serving more of the New Testament in order to drive this point home, I will move to my concluding thoughts. And I have to be honest, um, I was a little bit torn on how I wanted to conclude this. So how should we conclude this? And I thought maybe by discussing the sentiments of some of those who came before us, we'll work backwards and we'll look at Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is often quoted as despising and opposing Christmas. Uh, in fact, Spurgeon has been quoted, uh, directed towards me in attempts to rebuke me for my view on Christmas. Yet Spurgeon had a love-hate relationship with Christmas. On one hand, he noted his dislike for the day because of the abuse of the day, for gluttony and drunkenness. And he's also quoted as disliking the date of December 25th. Um, and despite the previous discussions on the topic, I'm not entirely convinced of December 25th as being a realistic or true date of the nativity, but rather a traditional placeholder. And we discussed that more in episode 149 if you want to hear that flushed out. But regardless, Spurgeon also loved Christmas. And that's what people don't pay attention to, I guess. Um, he even preached 12 sermons on Christmas Day once, saying, quote, I wish there were 20 Christmas days in the year, end quote. Spurgeon is further noted as participating in the festivities of Christmas, even dressing as Santa Claus to deliver gifts to orphans. And uh, this is provided to me by the source of the Spurgeon Center. It will be in the description with all these other sources, by the way. Um, everything I've been quoting will be in the resources of the description. Uh, the Spurgeon Center additionally notes that Spurgeon valued the day because of the importance placed upon family, and he, quote, leveraged the holiday for the gospel, and he saw Christmas as an opportunity to tell an old story about the grandest light in history, end quote. So we move back a little bit more in time. Contrary to many notions and ideas, the reformers of the 16th century actually differed in their undertaking of Christmas. Calvin, in particular, is often painted as one who was just detesting Christmas, but he actually, quote, sought to reclaim Christmas as a celebration of Christ's nativity, a defining moment for Christians without making the festival binding on the faithful. At the same time, his intention was to purge the holiday of excesses of public exuberance traditionally associated with both the feast and what he viewed as the abomination of the mass, end quote. And that is uh, Bruce Gordon, and that will be linked as well. So similar to Spurgeon, Calvin had issues with the abuse of the day, much like a lot of us do still today. Uh, but Bruce continues, quote, For the Frenchman, Christmas and Easter formed the two most holy days of the year, and he set aside a regular practice of preaching through the books of the Bible known as the Lecto Continua to hold sermons on the Nativity and the Passion of the Christ. Some of Calvin's most moving words from the pulpit flowed from his preaching on Christmas. Speaking on the nativity of Christ, Calvin drew his audience to consider the transformative joy of festival, declaring that it was a time for celebration in this world in preparation for the next, end quote. 
Calvin's letters on the subject can be read and his position can be read uh, that, that are telling. But his positions will be shared by his colleague Heinrich Bullinger. And Bullinger, in his work, The Second Helvet Confession, uh, which is not a confession put together by a group, but as far as I know, it's just pulled out by Bullinger. He says, quote, Moreover, if the churches do religiously celebrate the memory of the Lord's nativity, circumcision, passion, resurrection, and the ascension into heaven, and the sending of the Holy Spirit unto his disciples according to Christian liberty, we do very well approve of it. So they approve of celebrating these things um, out of Christian liberty. And then he continues, but for the festival days ordained for men or saints departed, we cannot allow for them. And he goes on to say a little bit more about that. He says, um, these holy days of you know the, the nativity, circumcision, um, uh, passion, resurrection, and ascension are for God, while the saints become focused um, on, well, the saints. Um, so I find myself agreeing with the conclusions of Calvin and Bullinger, but I will say that I do very much appreciate the older traditions around the saints and that honor the saints in some degree or another, but I don't know that we should have days that honor them in particular. I just enjoy learning about them and I appreciate the fact that they're tradition. And so that's that. So to that, I conclude that while it is not obligatory or binding on an individual to celebrate the incarnation, I hold that there are grounds for doing so. As it was mentioned prior, there are traditional elements with, within the contemporary settings that are optional, and some can indeed distract from the focus of Christmas, and so each family needs to have those conversations that they desire to celebrate Christmas and in a particular way. However, such distractions and abuses do not negate that the incarnation is worth celebrating, and despite how much the culture can convolute the intent of the day or season, because it's more of a season than a day, Christ is still around every corner in our culture, even with those classic Christian hymns abounding in the pool of quote-unquote Christmas classic playlists. While I have put forth my thoughts and considerations, let each of us, as Paul says, be convinced in their own mind and glorify God in whatever camp we land. And most of all, love the brethren regardless of their convictions on this subject and thank God for his redeeming love for all of us. I hope that this was helpful in some shape or form. God bless you all, and until next time, have a great weekend. Second.